God is. I don't know what God was reminding you of when we were worshiping, but I know how he was reminding me of everything he's done for me. And I can't get away from what he's done for me. After 30 years, I'm still in awe of what Christ has done for me. And prayerfully, you understand that. And it grows more and more in your life. And we never forget about that first touch of the Holy Spirit on our heart. Amen? Children may be... Uh, where are they? The teenagers, I think. What, what age group today? 12 and up. 12 and up? The others got to hear me. Aren't you blessed? Praise God. 12 and up. Bless God. Okay. Open up to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to speak on a text that's been on my heart for quite a few years, and I can actually say I've never taught on it, and I'm really looking forward to this text today. It's a defining moment in Peter's life. I'm a sinful man, and hopefully you can relate to the message today. Uh, it's a defining moment we all need to have if we're going to go to heaven. <laughs> I'm a sinful man. The ability to call yourself out as a sinner in need of salvation is imperative if you're ever going to make it to the other side. Because Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy. So we're going to take a look at Peter's life today in a real defining moment and what it really means. And a defining moment can be understood as a moment in a person's life that captures their heart and their mind in such a way that points them and excels them into a course of action that defines the rest of their life. That's a defining moment. Something that captures, it grasps your imagination, your heart, your mind, you're all engaged. And from that moment on, you begin a course of action that has changed your life. That's a defining moment in someone's life. The naturalist and father of uh, the conservationist movement in America, John Muir, defining moment is when he saw Yosemite in the Sierra Mountain in the Sierra Mountains for the first time. As one author says, as a young man, Muir felt he was a student in what he called the University of the Wilderness. The author goes on to say, Yosemite was his graduate course. This is where he decided who he was. This is the defining moment. This is where he decided who he was, what he wanted to say, and how he was going to say it. When he first strode into Yosemite in the spring of 1868, Muir was a scruffy Midwestern vagabond wandering the wilderness fringes of America taking odd jobs where he could. In retrospect, visiting Yosemite might seem an inevitable stop on his life's journey. But his later recollections reveal a young man plagued with self-doubt and uncertainty, often lonely and confused about his future. In his own words, he says, I was tormented with soul hunger. He wrote in his meandering youth, I was on the world, but was I in it? Seeing it for the first time, your notes, he was overwhelmed by the landscape, scrambling down steep cliff faces to get a closer look at the waterfalls, whooping and howling as the vistas, jumping tirelessly from flower to flower. He called out, this is truly God's cathedral. Well, what happened to this soul-hungry, would-be vagabond soon to become 
the world's most famous naturalist, is what happened to Peter the fisherman in a spiritual sense. Just as Muir had his defining moment when he saw, if you've ever seen Yosemite, if you've ever seen the Redwood Forest, when you see these things, they are overwhelming. He was overwhelmed by what he saw, and it was at that moment it defined the rest of his life. He was about 22 years old when that happened. This is what happened to Peter when he saw who Jesus really was. And that the only thing he can do is cry out and say, be merciful to me. I'm a sinful man. It was Peter's defining moment. When he saw who Jesus really was, that he was no ordinary carpenter or preacher. And he bowed down to worship him as holy God. And at the same time, confess his own unworthiness. This is our story tonight. This text is about the inner reality that Peter had and changed the course of his life. Personally speaking, I believe all Christians have this to differing degrees. If we don't, you cannot be a Christian. But when people are called into ministry, then I believe it's even more of an intense reality. Our text finds us in Luke's gospel. The story is what scholars called a called text. Is when Peter calls his disciples to be apostles and so on and so forth. There's three of them in, the, in Luke, the one we just read. At the end of the chapter in 27 to 32 is, 32 is the call of Matthew, the call of Levi. And in chapter 6 he calls the rest of his apostles. So it's important to remember that this story and the others should be carefully scrutinized to find out what the Holy Spirit is teaching us in this story, this call to Peter. Why is it in there? What does he want us to know? So let's listen carefully to Luke as he introduces us to Peter's call into the Christian discipleship and sets the course of a whole new way of seeing himself, a whole new way of seeing God, and a whole new way of seeing the rest of humanity. I pray it changes your life the way it has changed Peter's and many, many people's since then. Let's go to our text. Luke chapter 1, chapter 5, I'm sorry, verses 1 and 2. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gethsemane, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out to them and were washing their nets. Like most spiritually defining moments, it's always in a close proximity to the word of God. Rarely does God do anything outside his word. When it's proclaimed and explained. The word of God here most likely resembles the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5 to 7. I know Kimmy has been speaking on that and will be speaking on it for a while. Luke's shorter version of the Sermon on the Mount is found actually in the next chapter. There, as in Matthew's account, Jesus is talking about the inner life of believers. Where the Old Testament spoke more about the outward man. And following the law, Jesus speaks to the inmate man and trusting in God as father. Totally different. Something's going on in Peter's heart as he listens to Jesus teach. He goes on to say in Luke uh, 3 to 5, says, verses 3 to 5, thank you. Getting into one of the boats, 
which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your own nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. We see some reluctance in Peter going on here. It's reluctance based on natural senses and experiences. He knows as a fisherman, first of all, you don't fish in a day, you're not going to catch much. And he's already fished already all night and caught nothing. There is a reluctance. You can hear it in his voice. Which are good and necessary for success in business in this world. But not in the kingdom of God. And that's the lesson he has to learn and all Christians have to learn. All Christian ministers have to learn this. If his friends and partners, John and James, had said to him, let's go out fishing again, there probably would have been a fist fight. We toiled all night, caught nothing, and now you want to go back out again? Peter probably would have said, what are you, what are you nuts? So what do you think he thought when Jesus told him to do it? Think about it. If James and John said, Peter, I think I, think I got a feeling. Let's go and do it all over again. No way that's going to happen. You can forget about it. If anybody walk, and that's if a fisherman says, here's a carpenter. All he does is speak. He knows nothing about fishing as far as we know. But he's telling Peter, let's go back out again and, and cast the net out. So do you understand there's a real, little reluctance going on here? They toiled all night. But Peter has to learn about a different sense now. He has to learn faith in God's word. Everybody has to learn faith in God's word. If you want to be successful in God's kingdom, you want to be successful as a Christian in this life. If you want to enjoy life and enjoy Christ in this world, if you want to enjoy being used by God as a servant of God, we all have to learn the lesson to trust in God's word. Especially if you're going to be in the ministry which Peter was being pruned for. So Jesus takes this object lesson from his own life. Peter's reluctant and basically says, we toiled all night. He's basically saying, Jesus, you really don't know what you're talking about here. This is, this is my sphere of influence over here. I'm the fisherman. I know this whole land. We fish it all the time. We were there all night long. We toiled. Listen, we're tired. The last thing we want to hear now is to go do it again. And after that, we, we've, we already cleaned the nets. We've mended the nets. This is hard work, but, but on your word, we'll do it. You see, he said it, but in his mind, he wasn't thinking it at all. But nevertheless, Peter has enough faith to at least obey him in word only. Many Christians do that. You know that, right? Yes, yes in their words, but no, no in their actions. Paul talks about that in Titus. They confess me with their deeds. They confess me with their mouth, but they deny me with their deeds. So Peter's saying, yeah, yeah, sure, I will 
toil. We'll go out. We'll do it. And he's like, he's probably rolling his eyes like, you know, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. He's probably looking at John and James and saying, who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? Like, we don't know what we're doing. Now throw the nets out again. The rest of this story goes to show that Peter wrestled with his thoughts about the whole thing. Six, six to nine. We could say, and when they finally done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. But Peter saw it another way. Are you ready? Or I should say, but when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished. Means they were, they were gripped with reverent fear of the miracle that had just taken place after they fully know there should be no fish there. They fished it and there was no fish all night. And now they are over-amazed that by this word of what has taken place. They're astonished at all the fish they have taken. An obvious miracle has taken place. Everyone's in a panic mode to save the horde of fish. Don't lose a fish. If you're a fisherman, you don't want to lose a fish. If you're a pastor, you don't want to lose a sheep. An obvious miracle has taken place. Everyone's in panic mode. They want to save the horde of fish. It's only natural. This is a sense. This is the experience of fishermen. Get as many fish as you can. Get them in. Let's go. Let's fillet them. Let's sell them. Let's eat them. But Peter sees something differently. Peter sees himself immediately. And as the eye service service servant, but really didn't believe in his heart that Jesus knew what he was talking about. And how real that is to the Christian experience. And how real that is when you're trying to teach new Christians how to raise their children. New Christians, what marriage is really all about. Teaching new Christians what the Word of God says about sex. What the Word of God says about the, uh, the union of marriage and the sanctity of marriage. When you teach new believers anything, it's contrary to experience in this world, isn't it? You've got to fight the culture. You've got to fight personal experiences. You've got to fight everything. So when you start hearing the word of God afresh, and the ladies, as you listen to Kim, as she expounds on the word of God, as you go through the Beatitudes, listen to how what Peter says. The ancients said, do not kill. But I say unto you, if you have anger in your heart, you've already killed and are worthy of the fires of hell. What Moses did in the Old Testament, Jesus does to the heart. Peter never really believed for a second that one fish was going to be caught. You can hear the closed caption, those little cartoons, little closed caption over the head. Oh, yeah, sure, Jesus. Like, what are you, nuts? This is not the first time this has happened in Scripture. There was a man in the Old Testament named Abraham. 
And when the angel said, your wife's going to have a child, him and his wife both chuckled and said, oh, yeah? Well, his name's going to be Isaac. God will have the last laugh on you. Because with God, Peter sees himself. And he sees himself for what God wants him to see. He's nothing but a garden variety sinful man like the rest of humanity. He is not the great fisherman he thought he was. He's not the great man he thought he was. His heart was filled with pride. His mind was filled with haughty thoughts on who he thought he was. And God read his mail and said to Peter through that miracle, you have no idea who you are and you have no idea who I am. And that's the whole Christian life. He had this inward reality that overwhelmed him while everyone was running around, save the fish, save the fish, save the fish. And they were scurrying around. Peter is overwhelmed with his own depravity. He's overwhelmed with his own sinfulness. How dare he question the Lord? Overwhelmed. He's undone. He's undone. He's so bad that Jesus has to come to him and say, do not be afraid. If Christ doesn't say that to him and extend grace, he would have been a man undone in the presence of God. And this inward reality overwhelmed him to such a point, this is the first time in his whole religious life. This is a good Jewish boy at temple, at dedications, at the festivals. He never missed a Sabbath has now come crashing down on him. He's a sinful man. It's a defining moment. Sinful self-awareness for the first time. I remember myself, I did, as a good Catholic boy, I did it all, but it wasn't until I came into a born-again church that was preaching faithfully the word of God in the presence of God. I left that day 30 years ago, and I said to myself, I'm just a sinner, and that's all I am. I was undone by the presence of God. Peter was undone by the presence of the Son of God and who he really is. It was a defining moment. It wasn't my life. It wasn't Peter's life. And if you search your own hearts and minds, hopefully it's still defining all of us who we are. He will never see himself again the same. How many here could say, I need a little bit of that? I think just a little too highly of myself. Religious people are some of the worst self-righteous offenders in the world. Other people need Jesus. But not the healthy. Not the person that thinks he doesn't sin. They don't need God. Jesus said that. I came to save the sinner. Not the righteous. I came to call the sinner to repentance. Not the self-righteous who don't think there's anything wrong with them. They got such a high view of himself. They're so self-righteous. It's everybody else that needs help but not them. Peter was one of them. Religion can do that. Religion without the gospel. Christian religion without the gospel. They make monsters. They think God owes them something because of their religious duty. 
and because they're a religious resume, and because they're giving and their tithes and their offering, they think that God's going to do something wonderful on that day. Little do they know they've got to stand before Jesus Christ, the sinless one, and give an account of their sinful life. And understand something. When you stand before God the way Peter was bowing down before God, you are outside your comfort zone. You don't belong there. At all. And Peter, that moment... When he saw himself face to face and what he really was on the inside, he was undone and basically cried out for mercy. He'll never see himself the same again. He'll never see Jesus the same again. And as the fisher of men that he's called to be, he'll never see humanity the same again. Every pastor has to learn this lesson. Every maturing Christian has to learn the lesson that we are not who we think we are. Guess what? Everybody pay attention for a second. God doesn't need you at all. Period. But he loves us and he chooses to give us the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom. And it's through weakness that his power is perfected in us. I can't tell you how much this text means to me. And I know it meant something to Peter. But this lesson Peter learned, it's not the last time he had to learn it. <laughs> it was the first. And it was the beginning work of God on the human heart in Peter's life. He had to come to reality that he's not the great man he thinks he is. He's not the stellar fisherman. He's not the stellar person in the community. He's not, every, he's not everything his mother said he was. His father said he was. Oh, Peter, you're so cute. Oh, Peter, you know this. And oh, Peter, everybody's doting over Peter. Peter was like the Pharaoh's complex. You know, yeah, I'm not bad. I'm Peter. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm Simon over here. I'm Simon Peter, you know. And Jesus had to come down and cut the legs from right underneath him. Right from underneath them. But doesn't that what the word of God does? Even Job said that God first crushes. And then he builds up. See, when God crushes you, it's only the beginning of his grace. Because right behind the crush is do not be afraid. Every time we fall under the conviction of sin because we are still in trouble and still we still got sins in our heart, God always says, don't be afraid. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen. What a defining moment. He will never see himself again. He'll never look at Jesus the same again. He sees the human race, never will see it again. It was only the first of many times Peter had to come face to face with who he is, just like Jacob I know Pastor John preached on that not too long ago. And Jacob wrestled with the man at the fords of the river. He wanted to be blessed and all the man could do was break his hip and change his name. But that was the beginning of a brand new Jacob. This is the beginning of a brand new Peter. And every time someone's born again, this is what takes place. We call ourselves out and we say, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. I'm a sinful person. I'm a sinful 
10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, 30-year-old, 60-year-old, 80-year-old. We call ourselves out. It's the beginning of sinful self-awareness. Say it with me. The beginning of sinful self-awareness. Every Christian has this. As a Catholic, I remember for years just going because I was guilty to go to confession well, because that's what you do. But never once did I feel the conviction that I was a sinner. Sure, you could have told me what I did Friday night. I sinned. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I'd be the first one. Matter of fact, I did Monday to Friday. Matter of fact, I did seven days a week. And I can agree that the things I did were wrong, but I didn't know I was a sinner under the wrath of God. If I would have died in that place, I would die for eternity. Unless Jesus said, do not be afraid. That's the gospel. He has experienced the greatest experience any human being can have. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Who the Lord does not hold his sins against him. Blessed is that man. Happy is that man. Jovian and happy and filled with the joy of God because his transgressions have been forgiven. His conscience is wiped clean. There's no more shame. There's no more guilt. There's happiness to be in the presence of God. That's what Peter was experiencing. If you're born again, you've experienced that over and over again. This is sinful self-awareness for the first time, but it's not his last. Peter learned something about himself. Isaiah in the 40th chapter calls it nothingness. He came face to face with his nothingness. I ask every Christian in this room, have you come face to face with your nothingness? Because until you do, you are still nothing. Exclamation point. You're only somebody when you come to Christ. And God makes us a no person. This is Peter. Listen. Do you understand the lesson he had to learn? As soon as Jesus was taken up into heaven, the first sermon, the first post-resurrection, post-ascension sermon was by Peter. And his message was this. Repent. All you have crucified the Lord of glory. This empowered him in his ministry. He had a new heart toward humanity. He knew intuitively and through experience who Christ was and what humanity is. This goes beyond just finding out you're a sinner. I had to find out just how depraved humanity was through my own life, not through anybody else's life. It's easy to point to other people's sins, isn't it? Come on. Isn't there a sort of morbid interest in picking out other people's failures? It makes good gossip stuff, you know? Let's let's talk about other people's sins and other people's failures. But really what we're doing, we just don't want to admit our own nothingness. Because when you really have had a nothingness experience, when you come to this kind of experience, guess what? It's not so easy to pick on other people. I'm too filled with my own nothingness. I'm not one to point the finger at anybody else. It actually leads to a very humble, quiet, trusting in God type of life. 
And when you have a humble, quiet, trusting in life, God kind of life, guess what? There's a lot of peace and a lot of joy. Real lot. It's actually quite nice. It really is. Let's go on. 10 and 11. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, I will, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. James and John's brother were also overwhelmed by the miracle. Don't miss this. This was a special thing for Peter at this time. Actually, Jesus rebukes these two later on in the book of John. But they've seen the miracle. They're affected greatly by the miracle that has taken place to the point of leaving everything and following Christ. How many people want a miracle in their life? Are you willing to leave everything after that and follow Christ? Think about it. They left everything. All their doubts was settled once and for all. He's worthy to give up everything. That's the point. Those who really, those who never really see themselves as Peter saw himself will rarely leave anything Never mind everything and follow Jesus. I hope you didn't miss that. Please hear this again. Those who never really see themselves the way Peter saw himself, they rarely leave anything for God. Oh, they tip their hat towards God. They throw a couple bucks in the bucket. They'll, they'll do this. They'll do, but basically, they're living for themselves. Because only the sinner needs God more and more. But people that don't see themselves and don't call themselves out can never give everything to God. 30 years ago when I got saved, I realized what I was saved from. And I can tell you this day, 30 years later, me and my wife went to church on a Friday night to serve the youth. And we have not stopped 30 years later. We don't know what one week is in 30 years not to serve Christ. I don't know. What does that mean? I have no idea. I have no idea. Kim the same way, John the same way, Brother Steve is here, Marty the same way. I don't know. What does that mean? What does it mean not to serve? What does it mean to be a Christian and not follow Jesus with all your heart? What does that mean? It's an oxymoron. I got some good news for you, though. It's never too late. But just to get back to Peter for a moment before I close. Peter was going to walk down the streets of Jerusalem and his shadow was going to heal people. How would you like to be, what do you think it would have been like to be a self-righteous apostle who had all the power of the universe but not have the lesson that he's nothing? There's too many people running around thinking too highly of themselves that have too much power to begin with. And you know what ultimate power does? It corrupts ultimately. I don't know how in the world a man can take the office of the Pope. I have no idea. To 
take the office, calling oneself infallible, when the Bible says you're nothing, is beyond me. To take the office of a deacon or take the office of an elder, to take an office of, an, uh, of a pastor, and not to come to the reality that Paul taught us, no good thing dwells in me. I know what goes on in this mind. I know what takes place in this heart. I'm not qualified to stand here and tell anybody anything. If it wasn't by God's grace and said, Brian, do not be afraid. I've called you to do it. Pride. The text is about inner pride. And guess what? If you're wondering if it applies to you, let me, I'll let you in on a secret. It applies to you. All right? If we got breath in our lungs, this text applies to us. It doesn't apply anymore when you stop breathing. Until then, we have to revisit over and over and over and over and over again. And many times relearn the same old lesson a harder way. Peter did. Let's close with this. Where are you today? Where are you? Where are you tonight as a Christian man or woman? Are you fluctuating in your hearts? Are you here with a lot of yes in your mouth, but really your hearts, when you leave these doors, you've got nothing to do with the Lord? Let's be real. That's who Peter was. Peter was like, yeah, Lord, we toiled all night, I'll do it. What are you, crazy? What is this guy not? But real, let's be real. Where are you today? Are you fluctuating? Are you a yes person? An eye service only? Are you good at giving lip service to the Lord? Or are you a sinful man or woman who worships Jesus with their whole heart, soul, and mind? Here's application one, okay? God has jurisdiction over our thought life, as the text clearly teaches. He fell down before Christ and worshiped him as a sinful man because Christ read his thoughts. Christ read his intentions. Christ saw it clearly. What Peter was mumbling in his mind, what he was going over in his heart, Jesus read it like it was the front page. I remember being a young Christian studying the book of Romans, getting into the second chapter. And as Paul says, according to my gospel... Jesus Christ is going to come back and judge the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. I fell on my face and I was just pleading with the Lord. It was the first time I realized God has jurisdiction over our mind and our heart. I always thought sin was something you got caught in. <laughs> you know, blesses the man who gets caught in his transgressions, you know. <laughs> oh, no. I remember the scholar F.F. F. Bruce commenting how God has jurisdiction over the mind and the heart and the intentions. I was overwhelmed at the glory of God. I never saw 
Up until that point, I thought people were getting away with their sins. Oh, that one's a Christian. I know what they're doing. This one's a Christian. When I read that that day, I fell down and worshiped Christ for who he is. The genuine discerner of hearts and minds of men. They have no idea when they stand before God that day. No idea. Every sinful thought and intention, agenda, impulse. Everyone will be single-handedly judged by the Lord. It'll be miserable. On the day of judgment, they will not hear this. Do not be afraid. They're not going to hear that. Jesus is going to tell them, be very afraid. Because the end is here. Number two. What are we still holding on to? I ask everybody here, what are you holding on to? What's holding you back? Whatever it is, it's holding you back from the greatest life experience ever of following Jesus wholeheartedly. What, what disagreements are you having with the word of God that just doesn't allow you to fully give yourself to Christ? Because there's a lot of yes, but there's a lot of opinions going on at the same time. What is it? Ministered to a man for many years. We used to have the Monday night services here. We had 35, 45, sometimes 50 men strong on Monday nights here. For, for a decade. Guy got saved, led him to the Lord, water baptism, everything. I didn't see him for a while. After a long stint of walking with the Lord. And of course, the girlfriend got in there, and I don't want to get into it, so you know. He's like, well, we're not having sex. I said, are you talking about intercourse? He goes, yeah. I said, you're doing anything else? He goes, yeah. But I said, oh, that's not sex? (laughs) He really thought it was okay. I bring it to his attention. It opened up his eyes. He walked with Christ and never turned back. Matter of fact, he's with us to this day in this church. He heard because that's what sin does. Sin is deceiving. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 3 says, encourage each other as you see the day of drawing near because, and this is why he says it, because you'll fall into the sin of deceitfulness. Yeah. And we're here to remind each other to be careful of sin. Number three, you ready? First one was jurisdiction over our thought life. Number two, what's, what are you holding on to? Peter was holding on to something. He was holding on to a lot of disagreements until God straightened them out. Number three, Christian reflections. Not all Christians will have the same exact experience as Peter. Not all Christians are going to come here. Oh, I would like that. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'd like to see everybody wailing on the floor right now of how much God is holy. And if he wanted to do it, guess what? He'd have no problem. But the Christian life is a little different now. Most of us gradually grow into this sinful self-awareness. As we're taught the word of God consistently, and as it is explained consistently, and we do love the Lord, and we have asked for mercy, all of a sudden, gradually, we start to grow, and that's usually most Christian life. There's a gradual growing into the sinfulness of our human heart, along with the glory and holiness of Jesus Christ. 
And that's where life, we, we start to change it. You start to see great growth in this area. But that really comes from Christian reflection. So everything we do, every Bible study we do, every prayer meeting we do, every devotion you do in the morning by yourself or with your family, every time we worship the Lord, every Sunday sermon, that all goes to add to Christian reflection on who we really are in the light of God's holiness. But as we reflect on his word, proclaimed and explained, then we will have an increase in self-awareness of the inner life. Am I right? You start to look at like the thought of gossiping can't even come out of my mouth. Cussing, it's like it's disgust me, but still I could struggle. Like any man, I can struggle with anything, any sin I ever came here with, I can still struggle with. But as we grow older in the Lord, we become so sensitive to sin. As I shared a couple of weeks ago, the thought of watching an R-rated movie, watching people having sex, it, it, it disgusts me and my wife. It's like, how in the world could I have sat there and listened and watched that for so many years? How could I have thought at all that abortion was okay because, you know, it's all right. Or any kind of sexual deviance, any kind of sex outside the marriage is okay. How did I ever think that? But yet I did. And God was kind that he showed me and my wife over probably the first three, four years. Real good changes started coming. It's called the renewing of our mind in Romans chapter 12. That's why we got to be careful with each other. Got to be very sensitive to the learning curve all Christians are on. Just because you got a little sanctification, you got a little change in your life, don't be beating everybody else up with it. <laughs> encourage everybody. That's why the Bible says, encourage one another as you see the day approaching. Because they've fallen into the hardness and deceitfulness of sin. Don't scold them. Encourage one another. That's the Christian life. And hopefully this message was encouraging you today to let's be careful what's going on. This is common to all true believers. Number four, have you come terms to term? Have you come to terms with your nothingness? Have you come to terms to terms? Like, really? Guess what? When someone dies, guess what? For most, within a month, they're forgotten. Within six months, unless the loved ones are the only ones left that will remember them in any really dear way. How many people in this room don't know who John Muir is? Raise your hand so I can... John Muir. The conservatist. Okay. The naturalist. Okay. A famous man. But most people don't even know who he is or what he did. Has anybody ever gone to a national park? You ever gone to Yosemite? Any national park? You know why they're there? Because of him. Because of him. That's why there's any national parks. Along with others, he wasn't alone. But his endeavor saved the national parks. Actually brought into existence the national park. Lincoln was the first. And then Teddy Roosevelt after that really made it what we is today. The national park system. They're magnificent. When I was a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, we used to laugh at the people on TV uh, tying themselves to trees. We used to call them the tree huggers. And we laugh it up because that's what... Kids do, they don't know any better. Until we went out to Mere Woods. 
and I'm looking at these things that are 2,000 years old, and they're, they're 400 feet high, and they're as round as this, this room, and, and I'm overwhelmed, and, and I'm looking, and I see a tree over there, and it's got a big blue X on it. And I asked the God, what's the blue X for? He goes, well, they wanted to chop that down. But the tree huggers saved it. I have a new regard for anybody. Whether it's ecology or it's real. And it's okay. They're for us. They're not against us. I was overwhelmed because of this man. But he's dead and most people don't remember him. He grew up in a Calvinistic home. But everything I've read about him, never talked to about his religion. I'm sure he knew his nothingness. I want to talk about this last thing, I think it's important. Pride is an ongoing war within all of us. Peter had to come face to face with who he thought he was. When Jesus said, throw the net out, he was basically saying, you don't have no idea what you're talking about, God. I'm the fisherman around here. Go back, cut your wood, get your stones, be a mason, be a carpenter, go preach a message, but you're not a fisherman. Please understand something. You can't live life as a human being. Because you don't know what a human being is supposed to be until you come to the living Christ. And he teaches us about the origins of life. And he teaches us that we're created in the image of God. How dare any man dictate what life is all about if you don't believe in the God of the scripture? How do you know? What do you think? We just evolved like this? We got these extraordinary minds and we can investigate the universe and we can study things that you can't even see like the atom and the molecule it's hubris and men will have to stand before God one day and give an account of their nothingness I pray today you find out if you haven't you're nothing without Christ and that you come and you worship Christ as Peter did and all true believers has always done. We're nothing without God. Let's pray. Father, help us to come face to face lovingly and by grace to our nothingness. Help us with our high thoughts and opinions about ourselves, God, as though this world can't continue. The church will fall apart without me. The family will fall apart without me. Life can't go on if I'm not part of it. Remind us, God, that we're nothing. And the only thing that makes us something is your love towards us, God. The reason we can love is because you first loved us, Father. Help us to learn this lesson once and for all, God. Unfortunately, we can still be our own enemies, Lord. And unfortunately, like Peter, he had to learn it many, many times. But God, let us learn it. Let us learn our sinful self-awareness, God, that really in life we're nothing at all without you. And God, from that position of nothingness, raise us up to be servants that leave everything and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.